Welcome to the Precast, the Presearch Community Podcast. Presearch is a decentralized, community-driven search engine project. Visit presearch.org and join the search revolution. Hello and welcome to the Precast. My name is Catherine and today I'm very excited to be interviewing uh, our very own privacy watchdog, Dylan Curran. Hi Dylan, how's it going? Good, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, I think that most of our listeners actually already know you, um, but for anyone who doesn't, I'll give a brief introduction. So Dylan Kern is a writer. He has written many great articles, um, and some of them for The Guardian, which I will link below in the description. He is a YouTuber, web developer, and privacy consultant. And of course, he also does the pre-search privacy reviews that we all love so much. Um, did I miss anything, Dylan? No, that sounds, that sounds good. <laughs> Pretty flattering. Thank you. <laughs> okay, great. Um, well then, without further ado, let's just jump right in. Um, my first question to you would be, uh, why did you choose to work with pre-search as opposed to any other crypto project? Yeah, well, it's funny because I, um, I had a few offers around that time period that I got hired by pre-search. And I've never actually took much interest in the crypto space. I just, it seemed to me like a bubble that was doomed to burst eventually. And well, that, that eventually kind of came true. And why I liked my pre-search is that it wasn't strictly some sort of fashionable crypto project. You know, it had a, it had a goal, it had a name, it had a structure, and it had it was aiming to build an ecosystem, which was something that wasn't very common. Most of the things you saw in the crypto space were fads. And yeah. those fads and fads die very quickly. But if you actually have some if you're actually trying to solve a problem, then that's always gonna end up being successful to some degree at the very least so you know and i was just because colin started talking to me and then i found him to be you know he was very very knowledgeable very competent very good guy and he really sold it to me so even just seeing even even then like when i went on to pre-search and I actually liked it and started using it it felt a lot better coming on to work with you guys rather than going on to some other project that i didn't believe in in any shape or form so, you know, it was a combination of kind of all those factors, pretty much. Yeah, I, I totally get that. I mean, um, yeah, and I, I think anyone who listens to Colin for five minutes um, will, you know, instantly become a true believer in the project because uh, <laughs> yeah. you, really, you can really feel that he means everything he says. And uh, yeah. And that's hard to find, you know, especially because yes. oh God, the crypto community has just been rife with scams and dishonesty and that kind of stuff so it's just it's honestly it's very difficult to find find someone who's both honest and passionate about the project so you know that that alone would have sold me but then having research as an actual project that i like and was willing and willing and hopefully going to be a foundational member of research so Great, great. <laughs> okay, um, well, let's talk a little bit about the privacy reviews then. Um, there are currently 18 pre-search privacy reviews, and I'd like to know if there is anything in those policies that was particularly surprising, worrying, or special in any way to you, maybe something that you would not have expected or anything like that. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's funny with the pre with the privacy reviews, they're very, you know, most of them are 99.9% of the content in, in them in them is extremely dull and bland because it's just it's the generic and legalese you expect to find in those kind of policies. So it's quite rare to find anything that's well, you know, both interesting and out of the blue. So when I was doing the Amazon review, for instance, well, like I had already done the uh, articles on Google and Facebook, for example. So when I was doing the privacy policies on them, I wasn't exactly surprised. Pretty much everything went as expected. But then when I went on the Amazon review, and I had had suspicions for a while that the the Amazon Echo, the you know the voice. Um, the voice device that you you have in your home. I had suspicions that for a while that those were collecting conversations because it just didn't make sense that they wouldn't do that. Pretty much any home device is going to have to take advantage of the the information around it. That's going to be their sole purpose, especially because the Echo is extraordinarily cheap for what it does. Um, And that really matches with the other philosophies of big tech companies like like Facebook and Twitter, for example, who offer like a really cheap or free service and then take advantage of the information that comes forward. So yeah, but then I went into the policy, you know, it actually ended up being confirmed that they were in fact storing audio and conversations and using that and selling that information or using it within Amazon. And they said that exclusively within the policy, even though they had come out before many times and said that they weren't doing that. I was actually quite surprised that that wasn't bigger news because they say it quite clearly in the policy that they're doing it. You know, they just say like, yep, pretty much we're, um, we give ourselves permission to collect audio, stimulating, stimulating audio information uh, from the general area. It's something, it's something like that. That's basically what they're doing. Yeah, so I found that quite surprising that, that they would so blatantly declare that, you know. It's very rare to find something so something that should be so very so controversial just out just out in the blue just out there for everybody to see so i think that's probably one of the most surprising things i saw um other thing i'd say the other one would probably be with spotify you know these are the kind of like little tiny things you find all over the place in policies like spotify for some reason endeavors to collect your um exact location when you're listening to music which is really strange like there's no there's no need for it so with, with Spotify, they obviously all it is is a music listening service. With other things like Google Maps, for example, they need your precise location. So it's, it's not shocking when they do collect that location. But when someone like Spotify does it, it's just, it's just sort of, it's just why. Like why do you, there's, li- there's no objective reason or justifiable reason why you would ever need to do that. So they collect that exact location. Among other things, they also try to gain access to your photos and videos which also makes no sense. So they're also trying to get your, basically get your gallery, like on your phone, for example. And that has no justifiable reason. So they're, you, thought, you just look at these companies' policies and they're just, they're not taking information that they need to be taking, which is mostly my biggest problem with companies is when they're taking information that they, they legitimately have no need for. So it's wasteful, it's dishonest, among other things. So yeah, that's with with those policies it's quite hard to find something interesting but when you do a lot of the time it has really big implications absolutely and um i think that actually um i mean i'm I'm of course just as shocked as you are by all those things but on the other hand it's not that surprising to me and i think that 
you know, those companies, they just count on nobody reading the policies, which let's be honest, no one does. I mean, um, the biggest lie on earth is probably, yes, I have read and accepted the terms and conditions in the policy, right? Um, so nobody really reads it, right? Which is no. why well, like who, privacy review is great because then you don't have to read it because you do it for us. <laughs> but who does want to read it? Like, I don't even want to read them and I'm doing the review. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're like, they're incredibly dense, boring with these ridiculous legalese language that, and even then to find something that's actually, well, you know, interesting and useful to you that and just to read past, to read it past the lines it's quite difficult and only because I read them so much that I'm actually kind of, I've gotten pretty good at it. <clears throat> but yeah, I don't like, I totally understand when people don't read the terms and conditions because it's just too much. I mean, for every website you're going to sign up to, you're going to have these terms and conditions that are 3000 pages plus long. And if you only want to use a website for a couple of minutes a day, but you're going to spend, you know, three years of your life studying these terms and conditions, even if you wanted to read the terms and conditions, you probably don't have the legal expertise to actually understand them. So it's just, yeah, like I empathize people who don't want to read those policies. It's totally, it's human nature not to want to read them, honestly. It's much more understandable than, than us wanting to read them. Absolutely. And I think that those companies, they actually also count on that. And they really, they do it on purpose, I think. Because you, there would be ways to make it a little bit more comprehensible and easy to read and shorter. But why would they do that? Because then people w might actually understand what's going on and they might actually think, oh, wait, this is bad. My, you know, my home echo device is actually listening to the conversations that I'm having with, with my wife or whatever, or me talking to my cat, right? So yeah. who wants that, right? Well, that's the funny thing with like GDPR when that kind of came out and then it was like, okay, we want these companies to start clarifying terms and conditions of privacy policies to users to make it more accessible. And then, well, a lot of companies did that, you know, Google did that, for example. But even then, everything has a, has a spin or a twist, you know, like Google is not going to come and say, you know, like with, um, with Google maps where we're tracking your every location, even when you're not using Google maps, they're not going to say that they're going to spin it. And then once they've spun it, most users aren't really going to care if they spin it the right way. But we take your location so that we can optimally, so that we can optimize your user experience. And it's like, yeah, that's not what's happening. You know, that's exactly. not what's happening. So it's, yeah, with those spin, like with the, that's kind of the tricky thing with like legislation around websites and how they operate. It's just, it's too easy for the companies to spin it because they know more about how the technology works than the people who are legislating. Absolutely. I, I think that's, that's very true. And I mean, you see how they always, like you say, they spin it in such a way that they make it seem like it's all about, you know, being user friendly and just um, optimizing everything when really it's, it's the exact opposite, right? Well, there's a certain like degree of truth to it because there is a certain degree of truth to it because obviously com companies want to make their websites and services like as user friendly as they can possibly be. That's kind of why it's the volume. Of, the reason no one wants to switch from Google is because of the volume information they collect. That means that Google is genuinely the best service in that kind of way. It's just because they have so much user information, they can make it the best service possible. And then that kind of perpetuates the cycle. But I mean, they're they're obviously going to want to optimize customer experience because they want to make more money. So they're not doing it for you. They can spin it for you, but they're not doing it for you. It's kind of why it's good like, with research as a nonprofit is because you know like their motives are at least to at, at least to as pure a degree as they can possibly be. 
Exactly, exactly. And um, that it, it also reminded me of something that I recently heard in uh, some YouTube video, um, which was where somebody said, well, if you're not, if you're not um, paying for the service, then you're not the user, you're the product, right? Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> so, gen that's generally how it goes. You know, that's, that's yeah. probably the most common like thing that's said around kind of privacy circles is that, you know, if you're, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And that's very, that's very consistent. And there's not, I don't think there's anything in real life, you know, like outside of the internet where you just go in and get something for free. Like, I don't think that, and that, and that establishment or business manages to stay open. I don't think anything else exists that does that. Yeah, that's, that's true. And the internet has also provided, um, you know, the space for this to happen. Um, because before uh, the internet was there, I don't, it wasn't possible um, at the same scale that it is now, right? Oh, no, that's kind of the thing with the internet is it's so, so scalable. You know, you can say you had a business and you wanted to start getting user information. So you, you said to people, I was like, hey, you can come in and get a free coffee, but we want you to fill out all of your contact details and all of your, all of your life goals and all of your and then all of your friends contact details or something like that yeah. the rate the rate of user uptake to that i mean you're only going to really be able to get maybe 100 people a day so you will say you, and then you might even only get you know like 80 users worth of information that's not really scalable like the cost of setting up that business and selling the user information isn't going to work but the cost of setting up like a, a website is at these days it's virtually nothing and then the cost of getting user information is also virtually nothing. And then users are going to keep coming back. And, you know, the like, what is the cost of a user loading on Facebook to Facebook? It's probably not even measurable. It's probably like one trillion, trillion, trillionth of a cent. And then according, I think it's according to Facebook, they make on average $12 per user per month or something like that. So it's just... I mean, that's, that's why these industries work so well is because they're so unbelievably scalable. Yeah. Um, okay, but um, let's move on to uh, the next question then. <laughs> um, my next question is, uh, in your experience, what is the one thing that people get wrong about online privacy or what do they underestimate or misunderstand the most? Hmm. Well, I guess it's kind of funny because most people separate that sort of right to privacy and they separate it from other rights in a, in like a weird kind of way. And despite the overwhelming evidence that companies are, you know, constantly violating that right to privacy, people still continue to use the services and not actually keep that privacy in mind. The other stuff is fine, like not reading the privacy policies, etc. That's totally understandable in human nature. But but to know something is doing something, a, a business is doing something so wrong to so many people and to continue using it despite that is very, is very strange. So I think what most people kind of do in their brains is they kind of separate the, the right of privacy online and the right of privacy in real life. So nobody would ever allow a camera to be set up by the government or even a private business in their home, or at least 99.9% .9 of people wouldn't. They wouldn't allow a government employee or a business to follow them around with with cameras and microphones and track their whereabouts and listen to all their conversations and track all of their all of their activities and hobbies or 
or to track what they're researching or what they're what books they're reading, etc. So then when people go online, it's very easy to separate real life and the internet. But the problem is when you do that, is that while you're separating those two worlds, the internet still has, <clears throat> excuse me, the internet still has massive implications on the real world. So... Of course, I mean, it, it is part of the real world too, right? It's, it's this weird space that's totally public for everyone to see, but on the other hand, it's also very, you know, private because there are so many trackers and stuff that ultimately everything can be traced back to you if you don't prevent it, right? Well, yeah, we don't really understand it yet. I mean, it's kind of hard to... We don't even understand what implications the internet has for the human brain. Yeah. I mean, we're even seeing like among young people like for instance the skyrocketing rates of depression anxiety and suicide is unbelievable and the only real correlational or even causal factor is the internet and the high uptake and using the internet constantly so the you know i'm not saying this but you know like the solution to even privacy could be just everybody using the internet a lot less but it's kind of hard it's kind of hard to know you know like nobody really knows what the solution is yet and going back to you know with privacy it's the thing that I see the most that has the most real world implications are things such as governments subpoenaing um, or sending subpoenas to companies to get all of the information about somebody they're prosecuting, which is absolutely bizarre that that's allowed to happen because that because if you get prosecuted for something, the fact you're not there's a thing in America, for instance, where you're not allowed incriminate yourself basically where you're not where, uh, someone can't force you to incriminate yourself so if you had a diary for instance and that diary said everything you did on an everyday basis but it was yours and you wrote it the police can't force you to disclose that diary they can ask you to and that but they can't force you to but the fact that they can force another company to divulge that diary of your every of your everyday life is just is is untenable like at, at best and those things can be taken so out of context i mean everybody you know if you look at everybody's search history yeah <laughs> it's it, most of the time it's unbelievably bizarre like when i look at my girlfriend's search history it's most it's the weirdest things ever and they're just <laughs> in these weird sequences like she'll be looking up like i don't know like baby books and then she might be looking up like how to make an apple pie but then she might be looking up like you know does vaping kill people like it's just these series of strange searches and it's like a weird outshoot of human curiosity but then those searches can be taken utterly out of context where they were they to be given to a third party you know like if you're looking up say you were doing this is an example i normally give let's say you were doing a school paper on on um for instance you know terrorism or something like that and then you wanted to write in that paper you know like how to make a bomb that search yeah. is going to be taken utterly out of context if it's subpoenaed by a government and it's going to be used as evidence against you, you know, if you were under some weird terrorism charge. Even if you're innocent, that information can be used against you in any sort of way that someone wants to interpret it. So it's just, it's such an, I find, that's one of the things I find most dangerous is that, and what I think most people should find kind of dangerous is that governments, like the US government might be quite fair, for instance, but other countries aren't going to be so good. You know, like the, the biggest privacy, people who privacy affects the most are people in countries like Iran, 
you know, these countries where the government isn't so kind and people don't have so many constitutional rights. And then when the government can, and when that government can go and just find all of your web traffic or find all of your um, Facebook messages or WhatsApp messages or Instagram pictures or whatever, they're going to purposely misuse that information to prosecute you or maybe not even prosecute you. They'll just, they'll just label you a dissident and no matter what the intent of the searches or, or information was, you know, like, and if I can't even imagine how bad or how much worse the Soviet Union might've been if Stalin had access to something like that. Absolutely. It was, Absolutely. it was already one of the most awful tragedies of the 20th century. And if a government like that was to arise and have access to that kind of information, it would just be unbelievably diabolical. So it's just, you know, that's a very long-winded answer to, you know, why does it matter? And it's very catastrophic, but it's those sort of real-world disasters or potential disasters that kind of cement my belief in it more than anything. Absolutely. And I, uh, I, I have to say, I totally agree. And I, I just think that people um, very much underestimate um, the extent to which this can damage a person's uh, life. And another thing is that um, it's also, even if, if you personally don't do anything wrong and you don't even um, have any, you know, kind of weird search history on your uh, browsers, but you could even be made uh, to look guilty by association with other people who know other people who have maybe committed a crime and thereby, you know, you look suspicious just by association, even though you might not even know these other people, right? Well, that's what happened in the Soviet Union. You know, if you were, yeah. if you were, they would find you guilty of something. They, what would happen in the Soviet Union normally is they would just decide to prosecute you and then they'd find the evidence afterwards is what normally happened. And then, yeah. so if, if, a, if, if a country has access to that kind of information and then all they have to do is find anything at all, like even if you just, if, if you were just committing wrong thing and you wanted to find information about something you're not allowed, if you even wanted to look up like an American TV show, then they would have done you. You know, if you wanted to read an American book, they would have put you in the gulags. And that's the kind of, oh, look, that's, that's quite catastrophic, you know, and there's not, I have no evidence to suggest that that's what's going to happen or will ever happen or could ever happen. But it's those, you know, that's normally the why we have things like constitutions, that kind of thing is to prevent from that sort of thing happening. And that has enormous consequences for the ordinary person. You know, it was the ordinary person who got in, in authoritarian countries. It was the ordinary person who got screwed the most normally. Um, so yeah, that was a, <laughs> didn't expect to go on to the Soviet Union during privacy, but you know, <laughs> it happens. Yeah, but if it helps to, to paint the picture, then it's, uh, that's great. And, and I think it's right. You also mentioned, um, you know, our constitution. And I think that that is another problem is that legislation is really behind on, you know, all of the um, advancements of, of technology. So, so there's not really, I mean, we have, you know, basic human rights, but we don't, we don't really have a right to, privacy especially online or anything um yet um so i, I think, I think the EU has a charter on yeah right but not person. not i think in the u.s there there isn't one yet there is um, they have the fourth amendment so it's the right to privacy they have um it's funny they've actually used the right to privacy for um for things like um abortion like abortion is legalized in the u.s under the right to privacy you know it's, not, it's the right that the government can't interfere with what your private life is um but you know companies are constantly violating that like Facebook, et cetera, where they're kind of twisting your personal life to kind of do what they want to do. Um, 
Yeah, but I, I think that that still um, correlates with like online and offline privacy because we're pretty good on um, offline privacy, but I, I think that the rules need to be a little bit more specific. So. Oh, yeah, sorry, I get what you're saying. Yeah, the, yeah. Um, yeah with the rules to offline, online privacy, I don't know. You're like, <clears throat> I don't know what they should be. Like, I, that's sort of what... Yeah, me neither, but I think we should just, you know, still start a dialogue and we should uh, think yeah. about it. Well, that's funny. We're, 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 the people, we're the people in the pri privacy world and we don't even know what should be done. Uh, so <laughs> how do we expect these 55-year-old politicians who've probably never even had a Facebook account to understand what to do? So it's just, exactly. it's, a, it's a bizarre situation. Like, I have no idea what people... But I know what companies shouldn't be doing. I, know, I, don't, know, I don't know what countries should be doing, though. Yeah, and it's it's not easy, you know, and it's very, and I mean, creating laws is the one thing, but then enforcing those laws is a whole other thing, right? Yeah, well, like things like GDPR, where they seem like a good start, but now it's it's seeming that the cure is worse than the disease, almost. Mm. Like it's not doing anything. All it's doing is making making things harder for 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 web companies to actually succeed in the EU. So it's just you know, it's that's it's such a I'm generally against legislating companies. That's sort of kind of my stance, especially online companies. because I just think it's unbelievably impossible. And it's, it's, you're going to probably do more damage than good, uh, which is kind of like, you know, with the, there's so many consequences, like the, do you ever hear of FOSTA, F-O-S-T-A in America? No. So that was, uh, it was an act that was supposed to make, that was supposed to make the, it was it was it was kind of like a act against sex to help sex trafficking and it was to make company or websites more liable for no. their own content and stuff like that but what actually ended up happening and i spoke to several um escorts and sex sex workers and they were saying that the it's actually made the industry infinitely more dangerous because now, now websites are liable for that sexual content they're not allowing sex workers or escorts to safely um, well, do their work basically. They're not allowed to safely yeah. interact with clients online, and now, now there's an even bigger sex trafficking problem than there was before, and that's kind of one of the issues with with legislating web web services is that it's just we, people have no idea what the consequences are going to be, and it's it's just you know that's why I prefer that things like pre search come out that actually solve the problem through innovation generally because i think that's a much better solution because i just don't think governments have any idea what they're doing and they're 99 percent of the time going to make things worse yeah yeah I, I i know what you mean and um and I, I think that is a real issue i mean uh, in defense of the legislation they also can't really not do anything and it's really hard to predict the consequences um in advance but yeah it's uh it's very difficult but yeah, I, I think this is why we just really need to talk about these things more and think about these things more. Yeah, well, that is the key. So it's, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. And like that is kind of the key is to keep talking about it. Um, but it's, you know, I don't know how much more discussion we kind of need on the matter. It sort of seems that nobody really knows. It's, it's like everybody is kind of against what Facebook, Google and Twitter, et cetera, are doing but nobody knows what the solution is. It's just nobody can really figure it out without having much worse consequences. And then I'm, I'm, even, work, I'm even working with an with a organization who's trying to stop the monopolistic elements of like Facebook and Amazon, which is just a whole other problem that we, can't even, that we have to factor in then as yes. well. 
it's just there's so many different problems with these things is that I'm just throwing my hands up in the air and going, I have no idea what needs to be done. So yeah, I suppose keep talking is probably our best solution right now. Exactly. And I mean, um, it's still better than not talking about it and ignoring the problem and just, you know, <laughs> I well, mean, it's the first step is to really um, take a look at what the problem actually is, right? Well, people in, in is <laughs> find a solution. <laughs> yeah, well, people engaging with services like Presearch and stuff is a good start. You know, that's generally where exactly. it's yeah. only where I tell people to start is like find a project like Presearch or um, any other privacy based. You know, like if you're going to use Gmail, like turn to Proton Mail, you know, things like that. And just see where you go from there. You kind of the companies need to have some power sapped from them at this stage, because they're like to be honest, like Google is more powerful than the U.S. government at this stage. I would say, like yeah. it's they they honestly have more world influence and in how they can influence how say like politics, how general thought goes. Even there was a study done, um, I think it was Princeton the other day, and they found that Google was showing, um, we'll say, um, left wing media. Um, like up to 26% more than they were showing right-wing media. And that's not, I'm not even going to go into politics about who, like whether left-wing's right, right-wing's right, it doesn't matter. But what matters is that they're, they're per, per, what, what I would imagine to be purposely favoring one side over the other and, they're all, that, and thereby they're already changing a narrative that they really have no business in doing. So it's just, uh, you know, it's... Yeah, it's, it's the gateway issue. to information. That's that's the thing, right? And if that's um, monopolized in this way, it can be very dangerous, like you say, because it really changes the, the way we see the world, right? Because before the internet, what you would do if you had a question was, um, depending on the question, you would call your father or your grandmother or you would look it up or you go to the library or, or do things like that. And now it's just you you take your phone and you type it into Google, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's the, don't get me wrong, you know, like this, this, this access to information is unbelievably monumental. You know, it's one of the, this sort of like online, easily accessible library is the single, one of the, in my mind, one of the greatest innovations that humans have had, just that freedom of information is unbelievable. And that's why I, that's why I don't like companies like Google tarnishing it and, rather than making it just a free access to information, letting users rank it themselves almost, they're deciding to start favoring certain information over others and twisting narratives in their behalf. And it's just, it's, I mean, there's really no need for it. Google can be a perfectly successful company without having to do that. And then even the other stuff they're doing, you know, like using aggregated information. I was talking to, um, the CEO of um, ProtonMail, and he was saying, you know, the, it's perfectly profitable, maybe like a little bit less, but perfectly profitable to use aggregated data or depersonalized data over personalized or personally identifiable information. It's perfectly profitable. There's no need to be do, to actually have all this pro- or have all these problems. It's companies trying to vie for that extra five percent profit margin. That's causing all these issues when they really don't need to be there. They can be unbelievably profitable without doing it. But to gain that extra couple of billion in the $1 trillion pool, they keep doing it anyway. So it's just, um, yeah, it's an unbelievably complex issue. Yeah. And that's why we need decentralized search engine alternatives. (laughs) Like pre-search. Like (laughs) pre-search. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Okay. Um, then I, I still have uh, two more questions for you. Okay. So uh, one would be, how has researching and uh, uncovering so much about privacy and privacy issues um, changed your views and um, especially your personal behavior? Well, you know, I, I've always been relatively privacy conscious because I've, I've kind of been embedded in that technological world almost for like most of my adult and even teenage life. And I used to do, I had a friend and uh, he sadly passed away, but we used to do lots of, sorry, no, it's fine. But we used to um, do lots of these like experiments and sort of, we would see how far we could push the line of the internet basically. And that's, that's why, so we would go on like the dark net and see how much info there's these sites where you can test your privacy almost can't remember the name of them right now, but it would just, it would basically just, um, the, the website would act like Facebook or Google and it would try to identify you like to the best of its ability. So then you would, you would go on these little test runs and try and lose it. And you would do these little tweaks to your PC and stuff and see how much you could lose them. And what was, well, and what ended up happening, you know, 90% of the time was that no matter what you did, they would still be able to figure out who you are. Um, so I, we did that guy like three or four years ago, maybe five. And since then things have gotten worse, not better. You know, it's even harder yeah. to remain anyway anonymous. Um, so even getting into this privacy stuff, I really was aware. And I think I feel like a lot of people in, in the tech community really are just at least somewhat aware of like what's happening. And they have been somewhat aware of what's happening for, you know, two or three years at the very minimum. The only thing that I really say, like revealing the stuff with, um, with Google and Facebook and then that going viral and stuff like that, it really kind of encouraged me to 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 do a lot more research into it and also to take a more broad view on it. So I, I like looking at it from, you know, like a philosophical point of view and then from a, from a governmental point of view to look at it from a theoretical point of view, you look at morality point of view to try and see, you know, like which point of view is actually the best way to, or the best lens to view it through. And then you have just the privacy point of view, which is where, you look at it from from a an almost real life privacy um, perspective, where you go, I just don't want this company who I don't know who's inside it, knowing every potentially knowing everything about me. And God, like even if you throw in stuff like the NSA, and you're just like Jesus, like this is just unbelievable that that these yeah. co- that these companies and these these shadow military organizations just they just know everything that everything about me. And even, you know, even like no matter how, how hard you seemingly try that they, they can still find ways around it. You know, even if I want, even if I did all the things right on my phone, you know, your phone is your phone carrier is still probably going to capture everything. So it's just like this endless black hole where people are just trying to suck up your information from every angle, no matter what you do. Uh, so it's, you, you can obviously do your absolute best, but it's almost like a foundational problem at this point, honestly. Um, so it's yeah, that's sort of a, lot, a complicated answer, but it's 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 been like quite a journey trying to kind of understand everything and kind of try and figure out what's right and what's wrong. And uh, it's definitely changed my just doing the Facebook and Google stuff and seeing everybody's pers- and seeing other people's perspective on it. Because like once that article went viral, you know there was articles on every other web and every other um, news publication talking about it as well, and it was in the news all the time. And just even seeing their perspectives was quite interesting. And then seeing Mark Zuckerberg at the 
at the um, Senate hearing and things like that uh, was just, you know, and then seeing Mark Zuckerberg put like these big spins on what they're doing. And then you just, it really just, it, it was this weird murky side of, of, uh, you know, corporate America almost combined with this unbelievably problematic institution of using user information to um, make huge profit margins. So yeah, it definitely made me view it in a much darker way. That's kind of how I, I, I used to not take it very seriously. And then as time's gone on, I've taken it more and more and more and more seriously, uh, which is why I know, which is, you know, after thinking about it a lot, I've cut, I, I do tend to jump to these sort of um, catastrophic governmental viewpoints because I think people are very, um, I mean, okay, not to mention the Soviet Union again, but it only ended <laughs> you know, 30 years ago, which isn't a very yeah. long time. And I know things have drastically changed, but we have, that, I, I feel like that's in my mind the most dangerous proposition and possibility. And that's what kind of scares me the most. And, you know, I'm, re- I'm reading this great book at the moment called The Gulag Archipelago um, mm-hmm. by um, Solzhenitsyn. And he just kind of goes through just how unbelievably dangerous these authoritarian governments can be. And then just combining that with like the idea of um, a government having access to, to the volume of user information available right now, just like genuinely like chills my spine at this point. So it's just that sort of, and it's really not that fire possibility. So yeah, looking at all this stuff has just made me have a much darker viewpoint of the internet generally. Yeah, no, I, I get that. And even, I mean, you, you don't even have to look at the past, but even the present, um, I, I, I mean, I'm sure you um, heard about all these news coming out from China about all this new um, tech about surveillance and, and rating people and social credit systems and stuff like that. And that is incredibly, incredibly scary and worrying to me. Right? Yeah, God, like all you have to do, like if you watch Black Mirror or, you know, read 1984, <laughs> read 1984 or something like that like it's just the parallels are unbelievable it's uh god like china like don't even get me started i feel like china is just really they're blatantly doing it whereas we just don't really understand what's happening in, in say like the eu government or like the north american governments we don't really understand what's happening there either and not to get like full conspiracy theory but i mean we only really found out about the nsa like eight years ago you know, that was like the first time we've uncovered that that kind of stuff was happening. So we have no idea how much worse it is nowadays. Uh, so maybe like this stuff's happening in the background and we just have no idea. You know, we can, we can look at China and be like, wow, look at them. They're so 1984. It's, such a, it's so Orwellian. And then we could be under that spell. Like the Chinese could be looking at us and going like, wow, they're so Orwellian. They have no idea what's <laughs> going on. Like we, that's sort of, it's, it's, so hard, it's so hard to know what's reality nowadays and what's fake. No, exactly. And, and I think another point is, I mean, s- companies selling user information for profit is the one thing, and that's the obvious thing, but also all of those, you know, big data storages and collections, they can be accessed, i.e., you know, hacked by anyone at any time. I mean, you know, they're not all that, you know, high security and, and unhackable kind of, um, you know, pools of data. These things get leaked, get hacked. Um, I mean, we've seen this, you know, so often. It happens all the time, basically. So all of your data that is stored, it can be hacked, it can be sold, hacked and sold. You know, there, <laughs> there's a lot of possibilities for this. Yeah, what's funny with those, like, hacks and everything is that it, it doesn't happen in, like, the way people imagine them. 
Um, I think there's this there's this website called Hacker Keyboard, and it's basically kind of like you just you type of your keyboard, and all its hacker writing just flows down the screen, and that's <laughs> that's kind of the way people view hacking. But what really happens? Here's a good example. There's if you ever heard of the YouTuber uh, H3H3 Productions? No. Um, so he's just this big YouTuber, um, and he he someone tried to hack into his YouTube account and stuff like that. And uh, the way they did it was, you know, so like Google accounts have two-factor authentication and he had that. So what actually ended up happening while the guy, this guy tried to hack him and what he did was all he did was ring up AT&T um, or I think it might have been T-Mobile. I think he rang, up, he rang up T-Mobile, just a cell phone provider, and just said, hey, I'm an employee with, <laughs> with T-Mobile. Can you give me the uh, SIM code wow. to, uh, to Ethan's phone? And then they went, okay, and they gave it to him. And then he, then he just plugged that SIM code into the phone. Like, I, I'm not sure how that process works. I probably sound like an idiot if anyone does know how that works. But he basically um, made a carbon copy of his phone. But that's not like, and then tried to lock into the account with a two-factor authentication. He also got access to all of um, their emails and texts and stuff like that. And, you know, within, it could have been within half an hour, he could have been hacked, like very easily. But that's not, it's not these amazing tech guys who are doing it. Like 90% of the time, it's just social hacking. It's just yeah. social engineering. It's just people ringing up a company and being like, hey, I work for you. Can you give me stuff? And they go, okay. It's easier than, than you'd think, right? And I think mm. people just underestimate how easy it is, right? Yeah, well, that's what happened with Cambridge Analytica. It wasn't really a technological leak. You know, it wasn't a hacker from the darknet coming in and stealing stuff. Like that happens too, but it's not as common. You know, the the... Cambridge Analytica was basically more of a social screw-up more than anything. You know, it was more of a mistake than it was an actual, some guy sitting in, his, sitting in a basement with four other Russian guys, you know, just typing and trying <laughs> to hack in. That's not really what, if that almost never happens. Exactly, but, because they're, they're looking for the easiest way in, right? Yeah, and it's far, easy, far easier to exploit a human than it is to exploit a website. It's like, you know, I remember there was the SQL heartbreak um, I think that's what it was called, or Heartseeker. I can't remember what it was called, but the Heart or Heartbleed. God, I can't remember. But that was the that was a, an exploit that you could use to hack into any website that basically used um, SQL or SQL, and that happened like around 2011. And that stuff's super rare. Like that almost never happens. And um, those when you hear about, when you look at the news and hear of like darknet hackers and stuff like that, that happens. Like it is, it, but it's normally small scale. So you'll hear about like a random Canadian bank getting or losing like 10,000 records or something like that. And then you can find that stuff on the darknet and it's relatively cheap. But those big leaks is normally done through social engineering. So it's, you know, being scared of hackers, like just like assailing your computer or phone is extraordinarily rare. It's, you should probably watch out for a guy ringing from T-Mobile pretending to work for T-Mobile. That's far, that's far more likely. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there's always um, also the option of somebody just accidentally leaking something, right? I mean... Yeah, that happens too. That's happened. That happens actually a lot, yeah. um, which, is, which is quite worrying. You know, it's just that these companies don't have like strict protocols or anything like that. Um, and even if they do, it still happens. I mean, we're all human. We all make mistakes. You just send one wrong email and boom, there you go, right? That, yeah, that happened with... Um, I use a plugin called um, Ghostery. So, you know, that's like that blocks um, trackers yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. It was funny. They actually had a, they had, um, 
they sent out an email to their users, but by accident, they actually, I think it was, it, it was a woman who worked on the marketing side of it, not the actual software side, but she accidentally in the CC included all of the users of Ghostery, of which there was several, several hundred thousand. I don't even know how it got accepted. So if you, I got the email and then looked at it and then in the CC, I saw thousands of other emails of people who also use the tracker which is just like a human mistake. But the fact that that happened was just, that's an, that was enormously embarrassing for them that it happened. Like the tracker, I've looked into the tracker and stuff. It's still good. So it was the marketing side of things that were tricky. But the, it's just, it's mind blowing that such a small, tiny mistake can just expose so much information. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that is really scary. <laughs> yeah, and it, can, it can happen like to any website, to anyone working for any business at any time. So, yeah, you know. Yeah. All right. Uh, oh, boy. I think I have to uh, ask you my very last question now. <laughs> okay. I mean, I could talk about this topic forever, trust me. But <laughs> Yeah, I can rant forever too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So just real quick, um, do you have any kind of special advice and tips and tricks that you want to share with people with regards to privacy? Yeah, just the usual stuff. Um, what I always say to people is, you know, your greatest asset, like with privacy, is normally a common sense. It's just, um, <laughs> it's, you know, like just don't, just things like don't send nudes on Snapchat. You know, like that's it's just like that if you just live your life by that motto i think it'd be perfectly fine uh, that's so just, great life advice <laughs> yeah just don't like it's just it's um but you know I, I actually i posted on twitter a few few weeks ago or not a few months ago and i was like there's dozens of apps available that allow you that allow you to um, screenshot snapchats without letting the other person know it's so easy yeah. Um, and then I just had, I had just had oh, thousands of teenage girls like messaging me and retweeting me then. And I was like, <laughs> I was like don't send nudes. Like just don't do it on like on your phone because it's going to go wrong. Um, so yeah, it's just stuff like that. Like just, just um, also don't trust anyone on the internet. <laughs> like generally <laughs> don't trust anybody who isn't who they, who's pretend, who is not verified by you personally. Um, be, just be extraordinarily careful what you put online. You know, I, I went back and deleted. I've do, I'm doing this thing now where, where I delete every tweet from the year before. They like say I went back um, in August and deleted every single tweet I had before March 2018. I just deleted absolutely everything because I just didn't. Because that stuff, I could something could be taken out of context of my words at any moment. So just kind of keeping the, just keeping those things in mind, you know, go back, you know, if you're looking for a job, go back and delete all of your like Facebook photos. Like you never know what could be taken out of context, what someone could find. That's kind of, that's kind of one of the biggest problems with, with, with having one of your information online is, you know, all, all it takes is one embarrassing photo to ruin your life almost at this stage. Um, yeah. But then like more particularly, I, I would ur- urge people to kind of stay away from Facebook and Instagram primarily i would just wouldn't use them like that that's almost like that's like a strict rule for me just don't use facebook or instagram i don't trust facebook at all and they're going down a slippery slope where you know their stock price is shooting down they're gonna have to start exploiting user information even more than they already are just to keep to stay profitable and instagram is probably their new way of doing that so um yeah and then if you have other stuff like um you should should be always be using a vpn you know, that was one thing I kind of learned a couple of years ago is I just have VPNs on literally 
all my devices. So on my computer, laptop, and phone, you can do this thing. You get a, a good one is NordVPN. So they're pretty cheap. I think it's like 100 euro for three years. So, and then you can use that on as many devices as you like. And then you get, you know, great choice of location, et cetera. And you can do like onion encryption, et cetera. Um, so I would encourage people to just get a VPN. It's like, it's a great step to um, not letting your ISP have access to your information, which is a big one. And also obfuscating your location. If you want to use, like, if you really needed to use Facebook, you could just use, um, like, an encrypted Onion VPN or whatever and then go make an anonymous Facebook account. Like, whatever you want to do, it just helps a lot. And then you can um, you can install track or tracker blockers for whatever browser you're using, such as Ghostery or uBlock or AdBlock. They really help. Um, and optimally, I would stay away from Google Chrome and use something like Brave. Like Brave is very good. Um, and I would switch from Google to Presearch if you can. Obviously. Like yeah, of course, of course. You know, that's just my little sponsored input. Um, but yeah, that's the basic kind of rules I work. That's like anybody can do those things, like literally yeah. anybody. Yeah. So that's the normal general advice I give. Okay, that's great. Well, um, thank you. This is this was great advice, um, and it was a great talk um, overall. Um, I'm really glad that I finally got to uh, talk to you. Yeah, sorry the that damn throat infection. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm just glad you're you're healthy again now. So <laughs> yeah, I'm well able to talk. I'm back yeah. straight. Got straight back into ranting. It's great. Yeah, that, that's awesome. We've missed your rants. <laughs> <laughs> and we need all the privacy reviews so we don't have to read the policies. You I know. It's, that. <laughs> I'm saving people hours and hours of their lives. I have, yes. to, I, I have to spend those hours, but that's fine. <laughs> that's the <laughs> exactly. job, right? A martyr for privacy. I know. I know. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much, Dylan. Pleasure. Um, I, will, I will uh, link all of your profiles, handles, and your Proton email address, super safe. <laughs> in yep. the description below. So if anyone wants to reach out or needs a privacy consultant, you feel free to do that. Um, yeah, and thanks so much. Until next month, bye and have a great day. God bless. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, bye. If you like this episode, then please subscribe. And if you want to stay updated on everything pre-search, be sure to follow our social media channels. The links are in the description.